Sly Flourish has two products up for the 2022 Ennies this year. We're going to talk about the new additions to the City of Arches in this month's Patreon update. Wizards of the Coast just released the Spelljammer Academy for free on D&D Beyond. We're going to take a look at that. Roll20 and Drive-Through RPG are merging into one company. We're going to talk about what that means. We're supposedly going to see our first look at the next iteration of D&D soon. And that really brings up what are my personal hopes and dreams for the next version of D&D. And we're going to go through Patreon questions from July 2022. All today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show, I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. If you like this show and you want to help me out, you can do so by supporting Sly Flourish through the Sly Flourish Patreon. The link is in the show notes below. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, some of which you're going to see a little bit later in this show. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly I flourish. Thank you so much for your support. So I am, it's been a hell of a week. It's been a hell of a hell of a couple of weeks for me. The Sly Flourish Empire has been doing very, very well. I've been very happy. And one of the things that's been really great is I have two products, two, two of my bits of creation that have been nominated for the Ennies for 2022. The Ennies are an award ceremony for role-playing games. Critics are the ones who choose which products get nominated. There's a set of judges who select which products get nominated, and then they're put up for open vote from fans. So you get to vote for it. And I am asking for your vote. I have two products that are up for the Ennies, and I am hoping you would do me the great service, if you enjoy the work that I do, if you like what I do, of voting for my, for my products. And the two products that I have, Best Electronic Book for the Lazy DM's Companion. This is the book that I put out last year, was delivered, or I, did, I, I kickstarted it last year, it was delivered this year in electronic form, and we are in the middle of physical delivery for it, but it is up for Best Electronic Book, because it had been released electronically. First, Best Electronic Book, you can, you can vote on it, right there. And also Sly Flourish, my blog, slyflourish.com is up for best online content for 2022. When you vote for something, this is really important. Before you vote, you want to give your top product a one, not a five. I've had many people who said, I love your product and I gave you a five. And I'm like, you realize five was the lowest vote. And they go, oh no. And you can't vote again and you can't fix your vote. So make sure if you're voting and you loved my stuff and you think it's the best one to give it a one. So that is Sly Flourish's Lazy DM's Companion for Best Electronic Book and Sly Flourish's blog for Best Online Content. That is on the Ennies page. You can find a link in the show notes below. For those of you who are patrons, who have subscribed to the newsletter, who watch my videos on YouTube, who listen to my podcast, who bought any of my books through DriveThruRPG, I am really sorry because you're going to be hearing about this all week. I have a whole blitz where I'm going to be sending out emails and I'm going to be putting up another video and I'm going to be sending all this kind of stuff. So I'm really sorry that you're going to be hit up with it more than once, but I would really like to get word out that I've been, that I've been nominated because it is a big deal being nominated. Being nominated is already a great honor. The products that are here are outstanding products. I'm very happy to be nominated. Thank you so much for your support there. I talked about some of the content that patrons get. One of the things that patrons get is a city source book called the city of of arches. This has been an ongoing project of mine on the Sly Flourish Patreon for probably more than a year now. And it's now up to 33 pages. I'm adding like little bits to it over the months, usually like two to four pages. This last month in July, actually just Friday, I think, I added six new pages of material to this to this source book. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. So the City of Arches is a city source book. It is a city designed for adventure. It is a city designed for you as a game master, as a dungeon master for 5e to have a great city where lots of adventure can take place. Some of its core features 
are that any any race makes sense and it's because the city of arches is built on this ancient city where archways connected to other worlds are used to connect to other worlds they kind of connect a little bit now but they're really one way so every so often somebody will come out through an arch so one major feature is that any race is here the other major feature is that while all of these different races come in when people come in their minds are generally cleared out from whatever they were before and then they are introduced to the city which means you have all kinds of different people from all different backgrounds you could have demons and devils you could have everything and they could be nice people right there's good reasons for them to be nice people there's definitely some things that come through the archways that are not nice but there are most there's there's no reason that anything that has to come through the arches has to be bad right so that's another feature the other feature of it is it is hugely extendable in many directions there is a huge catacombs that exists in the mountain behind the city there are depths of many ruined lairs and cities and everything that lie underneath the city itself and of course the archways can go out anywhere so all of these things exist inside inside the city the book itself gives a, a bit of history it talks about the truth so you can just throw it right into your game it's really designed to be easy to use easy to grab it's got politics and economics it talks about the keys to the arches which is sort of a way that you can sort of open these gateways and go to different worlds notable npcs that you can drop right into your game notable locations all these major locations that exist we have two different maps we have a top view map which you can see in the in the in the page here and there's a full page map we also have a cool side view map it's a two-piece side view map that shows a cutaway of the depth of the city underneath with dozens and dozens of adventuring locations. These are the catacombs that exist up above the mountains behind the city, and then all of the depths of ruins that exist below. This was all done by Chloe Ballard, who did the maps for these, and they're just outstanding, beautiful, outstanding maps. Patrons also get a map pack, so you get full digital versions, high-resolution versions of those pictures so you can use them in your games. We have all these different locations that the characters can explore. Here is that sort of isometric view of the, the 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 surface layer of the city with all of the major locations again all these locations are built for characters to have a good place to go buy stuff things like that really 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 cool notable factions who are the major factions some of these are good some of these are bad some of them are kind of in the middle uh lots of different groups that can be involved in uh, all sorts of political political play random events what are some events that are going on in the city what are some random city encounters as, as people are running around and then we get into a couple of the new things i created a two-page villains of the city of arches four different major villains that you can use each with their own quests their own arcs they exist all the way from tier tier one villain lady kayla the eye of abraxas is a tier one villain star and scrave are two villains that are sort of your mid-tier level five to eight five to ten and then we have two high high level the nameless king which is a major kind of plot arc for the campaign and abraxas the demon prince of chul who is like the major tier four villain right this huge sort of demon prince thing world from the arches was something i put out a month ago these are i think 10 yeah 10 different worlds that you might find on the other side of the arches just to sort of get your mind going you you don't necessarily bring your characters there but it might be lore that you might drop into the game when you're running it we have a player's guide right i think it's a, a single page you just print it out and hand it to your players. Tells them all about the City of Arches. Tell them how their character can fit in. Tells them about major patrons that they might be connected to. All that kind of stuff. Built so that you can print it out and hand it to your players. We have an adventure generator. This is similar to the adventure generators you find in the Lazy DM's Companion. A two-page thing you can roll on. You can build lo adventures, locations, treasure, loot, monsters, spells. All the different kinds of things that you want in order to build your own adventures. I have a hex flower. This is something I had picked up from the Goblin's Henchman blog. It's linked there in the bottom. And the idea here was just a fun 
fun way to explore the city, a fun way that you can sort of roll on this table and it sort of lets you explore the city as you go around. You can read all about the hex flower on this, on this page. It's page 23. I have campaign arcs. These I put in last month. The Key of Worlds is the, a major one campaign arc that you can do. I'm probably going to add another campaign arc, I think. And then I offer three adventures. And the it used to be just one. Two of these adventures have just come out this month. The first one is a very quick first level adventure designed for you to go fight some cultists. Because who doesn't want to fight some cultists? Very straightforward. Three rooms. The idea was that you could you could do it in about two hours, right? The idea was that if you had characters ready to go, you could probably get through this adventure in, in, a, in a couple of hours. It was meant to be a quick play adventure. All of these adventures are just two pages long. They're very small, very small adventures, easy to digest. The next two adventures are two parts of a series. The first one is known as the Vile Pit, and it's set at second level. It gets you to third level when you when you complete it. The idea here is a priestess has asked you to go find, a, she's having nightmares because uh, she's a hobgoblin priestess, very nice, very nice hobgoblin priestess, but she's having nightmares of an ancestor who is screaming at her, and she needs help to go find find out, you know, put this, put this spirit to rest from this ancient uh, ancestor of hers. But in order to get, she knows where the crypt is, where he exists, but she doesn't know how to get in. She needs a key. She sends you off to go find a key. You go down uh, into the lair, find, go into the vile pit, fight some monsters and get the key and then bring it back to her. Then the second one is called the Tomb of Rorathix. Rorathix is the ancestor. With this, you have the key in hand and you go into Rorathix's tomb, which is up in the mountains, up near the, the plateau. And there you face some like undead horrors. And what you find out is that Rorathix is actually kind of alive. Rorathix is in fact a vampire spawn. He turned good. And for the crime of, of, of deciding that for his people, there is something better than just servitude to the nameless king. He was fed vampiric blood and seen in a sarcophagus and has over the years has managed to kind of scream out and reach the, the mind of his ancestor to, to, to help lay him to rest. The characters go down there. They might face him. He might, at first he might attack. He might not. It's up to you. You can kind of decide what you want to do with him when you, when you have there. And you can also decide, does, do, do the characters kill him or does he escape? So there's opportunities for him to become an ally. There's opportunities for him to become a villain. There's opportunities for him to just be a monster that you kill, right? You have lots of different ways that you can use him. I like the idea of Rorathix being sort of a, a non, you know, sort of a, 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 a not necessarily fully evil, not necessarily full, fully good entity that is out there in the city. So maybe he's working against the characters, maybe he's working with the characters, but I like the idea of this powerful entity. He eventually becomes a vampire, full-fledged vampire, and he's still a vampire, but, you know, he, he was a vampire against his will, and he was kind of a good guy. So a fun, fun set of adventures. Again, two-page adventures. So those two adventures, The Vile Pit and The Tomb of Rorathix, are now included in the City of Arches. If you are a patron of Sly Flourish, you have access to it right away. I sent out the note on Friday. If you go to the latest copy, make sure to hit reload on the page because if you have it cached, it'll be the old one. So you want to hit reload to get the new one and you have the full 33-page City of Arches. So patrons, thank you so much for your support and helping me put together a product like this. I really love working on this product. It's one of my favorite things. And it's because like I just do a little bit at a time. I get to really think about the city. I get, I'm, I'm probably going to run a campaign here. I'm, I'm, I have a a, a third group that I'm going to be DMing for irregularly. And I think I'm going to be running adventures in the city of arches. So you'll probably watch it expand as I run my own campaigns. They're really fun to do. So I hope, I hope you dig it. Speaking of adventures, Wizards of the Coast has released the Spelljammer Academy. There will be a link in the show notes below. I will stick it into Discord, or sorry, in Discord, into Twitch as well. This is a free set of four adventures, Orientation, Trial by Fire, Realm Space Sortie, and Behold the Chaka. God. 
Hachka, which are coming out soon. And I think that these are four precursor adventures to the Spelljammer box set that's going to be coming out, which I think is really cool. They, it looks really good. It's, it's you know, fully like like the design, if you look at the credits, you know, fully designed by the same people that are giving you the desktop products like or, or they're giving you books. Will Doyle, who worked on Wild Beyond the Witchlight. He is the writer, Scott Gray and Christopher Perkins. Scott, Scott Gray, my, my friend, my friend Scott Gray did the editing for this one. And so it's fully produced by Wizards of the Coast and released for free on, on D&D Beyond. So I think that that is, that is really cool. And I took a look at it. I didn't, I didn't read through the whole thing, but it's a very cool. Like it starts you off. It's got a real strong start and kind of immediately gets in the idea of like what Spelljammer is like and what you're doing and stuff like that. So I thought it was really cool. Nice, small adventure. The kind of thing that you can't really put into a book unless you're doing like a bigger book, right? Because it's relatively short. And, and, and yet a good thing to get for free on D&D Beyond. Now, there is this question of like, yeah, but why don't they have a PDF of this available on DriveThruRPG or in the DMs Guild? And I think it's pretty safe to say, after spending whatever hundreds of millions of dollars they spent buying D&D Beyond, we can expect that Wizards of the Coast is going to be releasing their digital content on D&D Beyond, that that is how they're going to do it. Because one, one big thing is it's a way to ensure that they can get your user account and stuff like that. There are definitely people who are kind of pissed off about that. Right? There's definitely people who are like, I don't like the fact that they're putting out this stuff and that they're only putting it on D&D Beyond and that you know, now I have to have this D&D Beyond account. I don't want to have a D&D Beyond account. I get it. But you know, I don't think we really get much say in the matter because it's like, well, it's their site and it's their stuff. They get to do with it what they want. Would it be nice if they put out a PDF? Sure, because that way we could be sure if D&D Beyond goes away, this doesn't go away with it, right? But you know, it's free. No one's making you take it, right? So you know, how do I feel about it? Fine right? It's fine. It's all good, right? Would I like it if I could download a PDF? Sure. That'd be, that'd be really nice because then I've got some idea. I mean, there's a big question of like, is my PDF library going to last longer than D&D Beyond lasts? Wizards of the Coast does have a history of pulling stuff down. If you look at the Wizards of the Coast website, there were wonderful products there. There was wonderful articles that they kept up. Chris Perkins had this huge list of articles and the only way to get those articles now is illegally which is crazy, right? He had, I think, was it called Dungeon Master Experience? I think it was called, right? A whole set of his massive articles that were up on the Wizards of the Coast website. You would think the amount of energy that Chris Perkins put into writing these articles would be preserved by the company he still works for. You would be wrong. Apparently, keeping up the website is so hard that they get rid of stuff like that. So you can find it on the Wayback Machine, right? The Internet Archive. You can also, if you go scrounge around, you can find people who have made PDFs of it that make them available, right? And you can probably, he doesn't care that there's PDFs of his articles getting out there because it's not, you know, it is his copyright material, but technically it's illegal to own it because it's copyright material you don't have the permission for. So that kind of bites. So Wizards of the Coast does have a history of having pulled stuff down. They have, they have in the past pulled stuff down. It's gone. It's up on the archive. It's not anywhere else. All these old articles about the design of fourth edition, all these articles about the design of fifth edition. I was trying to look for like David Noonan wrote an article about third edition right before fourth came out. That was really good. Many years ago, 20 years ago, gone. Can't find it. Can't even find it in the archive, right? Really sucks. So that said, there is a good precedent to be made for the idea that like when they put out products like this, they're going to disappear, right? And there's not much you could do about it. I guess in this case, you could go to each chapter and print a PDF and save a local copy. And that would probably work fine, right? If you really want to do it, you could do it. You could stitch your PDF together. It would probably take you 15 minutes of work to have a PDF of this article on your local machine. So you can be sure if they decide to take it down, you still have it. Might be, might be worth doing. If you think it's really good, it might be worth doing. So in any case, it is free. 
right? We, I don't know what we would expect other than the fact that, yes, they're going to be putting this out on DD Beyond. And can you be mad? Sure. We can be mad about everything. Can you complain? Please do, right? If you think it's a problem, send Ray Winninger a note and say, hey, I'd like this, but I would really love to have a PDF available in the DMs Guild as well. My guess is you're not going to see it there because DD Beyond is their new portal. And if you think about it, boy, they are really putting a lot of material. We had Vecna last month. We had the Monsters Compendium, like the month before that. And now we have these free adventures that are coming out. They are clearly pouring stuff into D&D Beyond now that they own it, right? And if you like D&D Beyond and I like D&D Beyond, that's pretty good. So that is the Spelljammer Academy. Go grab it. Speaking of like all this sort of businessy sort of stuff, Roll20 and Drive-Thru RPG merged together or are merging together this is probably it's certainly not as big as wizards of the coast buying DD beyond but boy is it pretty close because these are two of the big i think they are the two biggest companies in their domain in the world of, of role-playing game roll 20 is as far as i know and somebody can prove me wrong with stats i think it is by far the biggest virtual tabletop that exists for role-playing games right biggest by far drive through rpg is also equally the biggest place to buy digital copies of role-playing games. Maybe the, the single biggest place to buy role-playing games overall. I know like Amazon and stuff like that are big, but certainly from the PDF perspective, DriveThruRPG is huge. So these two companies are massive companies in the world of role-playing games. They have been, they are the number one company in their two fields. And what's interesting is there was a tiny little bit of overlap little bit of overlap between these two. DriveThruRPG ran a thing called Astral VTT, which is their own virtual tabletop. They tried to do it, didn't really work. I think they're killing it. I got a note, like they managed to convince me to have them convert a couple of my adventures over to Astral. And I never, I don't think I ever saw any money from it. I don't think I, if I ever saw a dime, I don't really remember. I mean, I don't think they took money from me. I don't think anybody bought it, right? It was clearly not very popular. And so they did a little bit of virtual tabletop stuff. And likewise, Roll20 sells products mostly to incorporate in Roll20. But there's like digital product sales are definitely up on Roll20. And now they're merging, right? And I think the initial thing that I had heard that we, we saw when we, when, we, when we look at the merger, here is Lisa Penrose, who works for DriveThruRPG, works for One Bookshelf is the name of the company. One Bookshelf is the one that runs DriveThruRPG. They also run the DMs Guild, which is very interesting. It's, it's probably not a big deal for Wizards of the Coast because the DMs Guild, the, uh, Wizards of the Coast products were already available on both platforms. So for them, I'm sure there's licensing questions, but really they already were licensing their stuff to both groups. So it's not a big deal. So one of the interesting things about it, so, so one of the things I think we're initially going to see is you can now buy drive through RPG products in Roll20 and they will have a PDF viewer in Roll20 to let you view the PDFs of the stuff you buy. As a publisher, that's pretty interesting. Does that mean like I now am suddenly, all of my products are now going to be available in a whole other distribution platform that is the number one biggest distribution platform for its style, VTTs. Is that going to result in sales? I think it could, right? One of the things I've struggled with is should I convert my adventures and stuff like that to Roll20? It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of quality control. It's a lot of accounting. It's a lot of management. And I'm like, you know, I'm busy. I'm too busy. A, I don't really play on Roll20. So I wouldn't be using my own stuff over there. So which means I kind of lose a level of quality control when I just have to trust other people to tell me that it's good. And, and it was just, and, and I've got other books I want to write. I got other things I want to do. I've got other projects. I'm just one dude, right? So I never really did it, but now it might mean that some of my products end up in Roll20 anyway, and that people could use them there and people could grab the maps and buy the map packs there and use the maps in Roll20. Pretty good, right? So what does it mean? Who knows? Some people are very like, Ooh, I don't know if I like this. 
it's kind of a pseudo monopoly. Well, they were already kind of pseudo monopolies, right? And when we say pseudo monopoly, we need to understand what monopoly means, right? A monopoly, they, to me, a monopoly becomes troublesome when they push out other competitors, right? When they mean that you can't even like cable, right? Like, like cable internet providing is definitely a monopoly because you can't just start one up in your town, right? Like you, you, you are fighting against a massive system, including governments, including local governments and zoning and everything that's fighting against you to do what you want. If, but like a VTT, many people have fired up VTTs, I'm sorry, virtual tabletops, right? Many people have fired up virtual tabletops. We've seen above VTD, which I reviewed here on the show, which connects directly to D&D Beyond, unless you use your D&D Beyond stuff with a VTT. Albert Rodeo, my favorite virtual tabletop, right? They, they came up, they're popular, they're making money, they have a Patreon, they're coming up with a subscription model. We have Foundry, we have all different kinds of, you know, Foundry is another one. What's the other? Fantasy Grounds, right? These are popular, they're making money. There's staff on doing this stuff full time. So it's not really a monopoly if another group, it's not a monopoly because you're popular, in my opinion, right? Being good and popular, having a solid set and being popular doesn't make you a monopoly, right? So, but still... And, and so what, what about D&D, right? Is D&D Monopoly, the fact that they have D&D Beyond and they're only going to be posting stuff on D&D Beyond. A, they're not. They are posting stuff on like Roll20 and other platforms. You can get it for Fantasy Grounds. You can get it for Roll20. That's not really Monopoly. Are they monopolizing D&D Beyond because they're not allowing third-party products in? Maybe, but again, go put it on another website. Take a look what, what N-World is doing with their website for Level Up 5e. It's really good. It's a really good online reference for all the stuff that's in Level Up 5e. Really, really solid stuff. You know, so... Is it monopoly? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't really see it as a monopoly. I see it definitely as growing popularity, and that could be bad. In this case, it's two different things that were already really big. So the fact that they're joining together, it's hard for me to see the the downside. I do have a friend who I love and adore who believes that this makes them a target for Wizards of the Coast to acquire them. I don't think so. I seriously doubt Wizards of the Coast is going to want to buy this company. And mostly I would say that because all of the other role-playing games are there. And why would Wizards of the Coast want to sell other people's role-playing games, right? That's my number one argument. They already have everything they need. With D&D Beyond, they don't need another virtual tabletop. They don't need the accounts, right? The big argument is, oh, you think of all the user accounts. Well, A, what's the overlap of user accounts between D&D Beyond and Roll20? Probably pretty high. They already have that. So to me... Definitely, I highly expect Wizards of the Coast will build a virtual tabletop inside of D&D Beyond. I would be shocked if they didn't. And it probably helps Roll20 and DriveThruRPG to merge together to focus on all the other games too, because it's certainly going to take energy away. So yeah, so there we are. Really interesting stuff. Really interesting to see how it goes. I don't normally talk about like the business of D&D, but this is one where I think it does affect DMs. I buy tons of stuff from D&D Beyond. I, I, yeah, I buy tons of stuff from DriveThruRPG. And I know many, many DMs are using Roll20. More, more DMs are running online games than they are in-person games. And the majority of those games are on Roll20, I think. So huge. I know Roll20 said that their revenue doubled in the year of the pandemic. Big. To me, that's big news for DMs. In the rumor mill area, in the area of kind of rumors, not really a rumor because it came from the source. But it's like not a lot to base things on. Ray Weninger. Ray Weninger is the lead designer for, he's the he's he's leading the design for D&D, right? He's the lead designer for D&D. He runs the team there. And he posted a thing, just a, you know, a little fun tweet saying, Jeremy Crawford, Chris Perkins, and I had an outdoor meeting afternoon to discuss the next versions of the D&D core rulebooks. 
No, they're not calling it 5.5. They're not saying it's 6E. They're saying the next versions, right? Among other things, Chris's dog Milo spent much of the meeting in the lap. And we're like, that's great. We love Chris's dog Milo, but we sure like to hear more about this new version of D&D 2. And somebody said, any delicious hints you can share? And he said, Milo loves ravioli. Plus, you'll get a first look at some of the new design work soon. You'll get a first look at some of the new, new design, some of the new design work soon. Okay. Interesting. Doesn't tell us anything, really. And when is soon and what are we going to see? Who knows? But it's, you know, okay, cool. We're going to see it. I don't know what it's going to be like. I could, I could make predictions, but as we know, predictions are, are BS. I can't make predictions. I can't accurately describe what they're going to do. What I can accurately describe is what I would like them to do. This is something I'm working on. My, my, my dream and my goal is to put together a Sly Flourish article. I've already written a draft and I want to, I want to write it to Wizards of the Coast. And I want to say, hey, I love your game. I love this hobby. It means so much to me. It means so much to many people. Here are the things I would like. And I don't claim that these are what the community wants. I don't claim to speak for anybody but myself. I don't think that they must do this or D&D is going to die. I don't think that clearly this is the direction it needs to go right? I hear all this nonsense. I almost said a bad word. I hear all this nonsense all the time on Twitter and on Reddit and all these other places where people say like, wizards needs to do X. And you're like, no, they don't. You know why? Because they haven't done it. And the game is five times more popular than it's ever been. Or, you know, if they don't do X or clear my favorite, what was the one on April Fool's? Like clearly everybody wants spell, all DMs want Spelljammer. I'm sure Spelljammer will be very successful. I, I already know that half of DMs don't even use a published campaign setting much less Spelljammer. I, I'm sure it'll be popular. They're definitely, you know, they're doing well. All DMs want it? That's not true. Like, I'm happy to get it, but I know there's lots of DMs. So just because you want something doesn't mean everybody wants something. But what do I want? So I'm not speaking for anybody else. I do have some data to support some of the things I'm talking about. I have data to disprove some of the things I'm asking for. I have things that I'm asking for where I know I'm in the minority, but I still want it. So I thought I'd bring these up from, I'm really interested to hear what you guys think about these. I am interested to hear what else you really wish they would have. I, it's a big topic and I read all kinds of things that people want. So I don't know where that's going to go, but I mostly want to test my, I want to put my stuff out there and I want to test it. What do people think? Where am I wrong? Where are there is, oh, you really ought to do X. I'm really curious about this kind of stuff. So I want to test my thoughts a little bit before I kind of articulate them in an article and send a tweet to Ray Weninger saying, with humility, I would love it if you would take a look at the things I would love to see in the next version of D&D. Because now is really the time, right? It's two years before its release. They're in the middle of the design. They're going to start putting stuff out. Now is the time, I think, to ask. Because two years from now, it'll be too late. Some of these things I'm almost sure they're going to do. Some of these things, I bet they might not. We'll see. What are Mike's hopes and dreams for the next iteration of D&D? Number one, full 5e compatibility. I don't want D&D 3.5. I don't want it where now I have to buy all new books and all my old books don't work anymore. And now I can't use an old adventure with the new rules. I think that 5e is so good that they can just make subtle tweaks that make it as compatible with anything else. I would love it if a player that is playing with the player's handbook of vanilla 5e and a player playing with the player's handbook for the new iteration whatever we're calling it could play together in the same game and you couldn't even really tell 
I would love that. In the same way that you can play with a character who has options from Tasha's and you can play without Tasha's and they still play together. You can play a monster from Monsters of the Multiverse or you can play a monster from Volo's Guide and they still work together. So far, everything that has come out, even though there have been major design changes in 5e over the past eight years, you can still play with all of it. So I would love for that to maintain. Do not build anything in the new version that that makes it so, you, oh, sorry, you can't use that class option. You can't use that class option from a previous book. Really make it compatible. 3.5 really didn't manage to swing that. I don't think any previous version managed to have a major change and not have it basically make the old one obsolete. I would definitely like to see an easier system for encounter building. I'm not going to tell them what to do. I have my own. You brought, If you've been watching my show at all, if you know what I talk about, you already know how I do it. I think what they had in Xanathar's Guide was really good. And I think something like that should be the default. But I think there are other systems for doing encounter building too. But what I can tell you is the Dungeon Master's Guide encounter building system sucks, right? And I think it would be something needs to be done with encounter building to make it easier to at least baseline how deadly an encounter is. And, and, and a, a, a loose system is fine. Something easy, something where I can do it really quickly. Everybody, I'm not everybody. See, I did it. I did it myself. Remember I talked about it as they say, oh, everybody wants Spelljammer. I just did it. So we're all, we all have a problem. But many people I've talked to, I can say that, right? Many people I've talked to, including myself, look at the fourth edition of D&D &D and say, boy, encounter building was a lot easier then. I don't think they can do what they did in fourth because of the way the math worked in fourth compared to fifth. That the, 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 the shallower slope of power in 5e means it's the two games are very different you can't do encounter building i've tried trust me you can't do encounter building in 5e like you did in fourth but boy what you can say about fourth is it was way easier to build encounters in fourth so i just want to see easier encounter building i want to see this is one where i'm pretty sure i'm not alone but i don't think a lot of people definitely the minority i would love to see better guidelines for running theater of the mind combat there is one tiny section in the Dungeon Master's Guide that offers a little bit of guidance for how to talk about areas of effect in Theater of the Mind to figure it out. I would just love to see that expanded out. I'd love to see things like how do you handle movement? How do you handle describing monster positioning? How do you handle opportunity attacks? A lot of different things that a lot of DMs who have run Theater of the Mind, this is one area where sort of the, the institutional knowledge is out there that people who have run Theater of the Mind know how to do it, including people at Wizards of the Coast. I remember it was a while ago. I think it was I was talking to Jeremy Crawford. This is years ago, so I still don't know if it's true. But Jeremy Crawford said everyone in the office plays with Theater of the Mind. Right. Chris Perkins used to play heavily with miniatures. And what I had heard was he had a giant barrel filled with miniatures that he was giving away to people who came to Wizards of the Coast for tours and stuff like that. That essentially Chris Perkins was getting rid of all of his miniatures. Right. And my understanding is lots and lots and lots of DMs. I'm sorry. Many of the people at Wizards of the Coast run Theater of the Mind. If you watch streaming games, many of the streaming games are Theater of the Mind. There's a lot of them. I mean, like Critical Role definitely uses maps and grids a lot, and they're the number one. But lots of people are using Theater of the Mind in streaming games. It supports streaming games. It also supports playing D&D with very little money. It makes D&D more accessible when you don't need more stuff to play. So I think having guidelines for Theater of the Mind would be a big benefit. Am I saying it should, it should be only Theater of the Mind? Absolutely not. Right? Here's my friend D. Bastian says, I despise theater of the mind. I salute you, sir. That's fine. Right? I'm not saying you need to use it. Right? I am saying it already supports the grid really well. In fact, if you look between Xanathar's Guide and the Dungeon Master's Guide, there's like 20 pages of stuff about how to do things on the grid. There's like dice systems and stuff. There's all of this guidance that we really don't need, in my opinion, to run it on a grid. 
But there's facing rules. We had facing rules. Who, who plays with facing rules? Nobody. No, 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 really. Probably few people are playing with facing rules. And we have sections for that. I'm saying we should have options. I'm saying that there are times where you're going to want to run without anything. And there are times you're going to want to win the grid. And I want the game to be as flexible as it can for handling that. So I would like to see better guidelines for the other mind. I know that's not for everybody. It matters for me. I want to see stronger, higher challenge rating monsters. I know that they claimed that monsters of the multiverse, that high challenge rating monsters were going to be tougher than they were. They're a little bit tougher. They are not tough enough. I think that the way that Wizards of the Coast is balancing monsters at higher challenge ratings overweights those monsters' abilities. I think it overweights the abilities that monsters need just to survive against high-level characters. I expect we're going to see a power increase with characters. I don't know if this is true, but like we did with Tasha's and we did with Xanathar's, we're going to see a power increase with characters. The monsters need to keep up. And right now they don't. And there's a couple ways to do it. And one is you can change the encounter building rules so that like a challenge rating 20 monster is the equivalent of one 20th level character, which I've done, right? But the other way is to just make them stronger, make them hold up. And most of that is in damage. Just increase the amount of damage that higher challenge rating monsters do. And I would be happy. But I want to see tougher monsters. I just don't think they're doing enough damage. I think that they're not scary enough. Right. That to me, make make high challenge rating monsters as scary for characters of their level as low challenge rating monsters. A Balor should be as tough as a wolf. Right. Wolves are not hard. I'm sorry. Wolves are very hard at challenge rating one fourth. I want to see Balors that are equally difficult at their challenge rating. And, and right now it's just not. Most of it is just do more damage. So I'd like to see stronger CR monsters. There's lots of spells and abilities that are making DMs lives hard right? When you're looking at all of these things, ask yourself which one of these abilities or which one of these spells are making lives harder for a dungeon master. Anything that increases the number of turns that a character gets. Think about your summon woodland beings. Hey, now I got one player who has nine turns around instead of just one, right? Terrible, right? Things like force cage. How am I supposed to deal with force cage when my boss is stuck in a force cage? Things like hero's feast. Hey, all of the monsters that have poison, now their challenge rating just dropped to less than half of what they were because all of their damage was in poison and hero's feast gives everybody in the group poison immunity. I have a whole bunch of these, right? I have a whole bunch of like little nitpicky things. Twilight clerics. I've talked about twilight clerics before, right? Twilight clerics increase the damage threshold that that characters can take so much that i have to completely retune encounters if i have a character that's a twilight clerk which is why i don't allow in my game there's lots of little nitpicky things think about how when, when anytime an ability adds like another thing onto the stack for us to handle it's making life harder in a dm so i would i would look really hard at them and say is it are these things making life harder for the dm silvery barbs silvery barbs gets a lot of crap on the web and then some people are like oh silvery barbs is fine if enough people are complaining about silvery barbs it's probably a problem because no one's complaining about like any of the other spells from can from from strixhaven right so if no one's complaining about the other spells in strixhaven they're probably fine but if a bunch of people are like wow that spell is really powerful and i had it where players like oh man i immediately took that one if a player immediately gravitates towards taking that one spell over every other spell it's probably not a great spell and that is definitely one that makes the dm's life harder right because now you're adding onto the stack the character you know my you, you know the character you cast a spell on the monster Oh, he rolls a saving throw. He succeeds. No, he doesn't. I cast Silvery Barbs. Now you just added to the stack. Don't add to the stack, man. This isn't Magic the Gathering. I'm complaining. So fix things that make it. Include the Tasha. Then these are, these are a couple things that I expect they're going. Include the Tasha's quality of life changes. So Tasha's has a whole section about class changes that aren't subclass changes. Those are all 
pretty great. And I would say take those and move those into the becoming core. I basically do that now. Even if I don't allow the Tasha subclasses, I still allow the Tasha's main things. I love the flexible attribute bonuses. I know people don't, but I do. I like all the class stuff. I like the ability for characters to be able to switch in and out abilities either on rests or on other things. A cleric can take channel divinity and use channel divinity to get spell slots back. Those are good quality of life changes. I like them a lot. And I would like to see those make their way into the main book. And I presume they are because it sure feels like Tasha's could be a play test for the future of D&D. So I would, I would be surprising. I definitely, this is one where I think they, Wizards of the Coast already is on top of this and I don't really need to even talk about it. I'm not even the right guy to talk about it, but certainly less problematic, like genetic determinism in monster design. Every goblin is a black hearted little cave dwelling thief. Really? Every one of them? None of them are nice. None of them come back. Right? That's that's not great. That's not great in the descriptions. Orcs are all brutish, warmongering, you know, hateful people. Every one of them? Right? And where we've seen that this breaks and it breaks in a really great way is Eberron. Eberron, that's not true. Right? Eberron, all those things are not true. And and it works great. Right? You can still have mean orcs. Orcs of Luthic are still bad. Goblins of, 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 of Meglubiet are still bastards. But we don't have to say that the entire race is all evil. First of all, that is incredibly racist. Second of all, it you know it doesn't have to be that way, right? It's more interesting when the game has variants for the characters. Uh, City of Arches, I was talking about it earlier. The City of Arches is a way for any race, including demons and devils, to show up and become nice people. I had a, a horned devil who became a baker, right? Because he came through and he's like, I'm really angry, but I don't remember why. And like, I think I'd like to learn how to cook. And he became a cook. Is that terrible? No. Does it like smooth everything out so everything is the same? No, because everybody's unique and different. So I don't think I don't think I have to tell anybody anything about this because I think it's definitely going to happen. Finally, my well, not finally, I got two more. Right. So update the system resource document. Right. I, I would love to see whatever they do in the next iteration of D&D. I know that they're all behind D&D Beyond. I know that it feels like Wizards of the Coast is getting more insular, that they want to have better control over everything that they're putting out. The days of the SRD might be behind us, and that would make me sad. But I would be very happy. I would be very happy if the system resource document is updated with the new version. As a third-party producer, it makes my life easier. The reality is I can still publish. As long as it does maintain compatibility with 5e, the old one can probably serve me fine. Boy, it would be really great if if the people at Wizards of the Coast want this game to last beyond the drives of the company, if they want it to last beyond the direction, if they want it to last beyond them, the way to do that is put it in SRD and make it so now it's openly available and people can use it. I, I believe that. I think it has made 5e incredibly strong. It's offered lots of stuff. I, I wouldn't say that it's key to the success of 5e. But I think that it has made it has made it very resilient, right? It has made 5e incredibly resilient because it took the base game and made it bigger than Wizards of the Coast. And I hope that Wizards of the Coast does that again. Then the last one is leave the rest be. I love 5e. I've been playing it for eight years. I've had to do fewer changes for this version of the game than any previous version of D&D. It is my favorite version of D&D. I don't even know that I really need a new version. I'm pretty happy. I've seen a lot of people saying we don't need a new version. They're going to do it anyway. So if you're going to do it, fix it, but make those fixes slight and subtle and make it fully compatible and keep a lot of it the same because D&D has been wonderful. I've loved it. I still love it. I'm running the 5e campaign right now. I'm going to be running two more 5e campaigns. I don't see any reason why I should stop playing 5e. I love it. So I would I would like to keep it. And so those are my, Mike Shea's personal hopes and dreams for the future of D&D. Let's talk about Patreon questions. Every month, 
I put up a post on the Sly Flourish Patreon asking people, asking patrons of Sly Flourish to ask any question they want about running D&D or running other RPGs. And I answer those questions. I answer all of them every Friday morning on Patreon directly. Some of those questions I take and I put here into the talk show so we can talk about it. Some of them I turn into articles and some of them I turn into other videos as well. So let's take a look at our questions. Troy says, in a long-term game, how do you how do you like to deal with players leaving or dropping from the game? So how do you write these characters out of the world? And is it acceptable to make them to make them over into NPCs? It's a good question. Um, I, I, I usually just have them fade out of the picture. I don't I'm usually not comfortable churning someone even though they're gone. Right. Even if they're not connected to that character anymore, I don't usually feel good about having them about running them as an NPC because I feel like the actor behind the character changed. And I'm not I'm not a big fan of that. So generally, I let them fade into the background the same way that I would do it if they left a particular game. I would just I would just have them sort of fade off in the background. So it's up to you. Right. You can there's obviously different ways you could do it. And if and I think if you can make it work, you can make it work fine. And usually just their, their stories kind of go with them. I run very organic stories where there lots of different things can happen. So I don't usually have like a clear arc that has to be made. And if you think about like Game of Thrones, there's lots of character arcs that never actually pan out, right? And lots of things where people are just killed. So you don't have to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything as drastic as having them killed off unless the player is like, I want my character to die. I've had that happen where they're like, I want my character killed off. And they're like, well, okay, we can work with that, right? But I wouldn't do anything drastic. Most of the time, I just have them fade into the background. I think that's just smooth. Our our campaigns don't need to be super tight, super articulate, like stories that you could write in a novel. It's okay for them to be fuzzy. And it's okay for real life things to change what's going on in the story. It, first of all, it does. Think about like Downton Abbey. How many characters in Downton Abbey died because the actors got popular? A lot, right? So I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about it that much. I would I would that my my feeling is let them fade into the background. Anthony B says, I'm DMing Call of the Netherdeep and the PCs are about to travel to a massive city with nine different fleshed out wards and districts. The yam you talk about in Watsi Adventure Design is getting to its most open point. How do you manage large cities like this that seem daunting? When he talks about the yam, we talk about the yam-shaped adventure where adventures that start off with one specific sort of path and then they expand out in the middle with lots of different options and then they narrow back down to one specific ending again. That's kind of the yam-shaped adventure, right? That's what he's talking about. So another, another campaign, I haven't run... Co- call from the netherdeep but i did run waterdeep waterdeep dragon heist and that certainly has the same sort of issue and one is to kind of focus the story you want to expand it in ways that the players can grasp and can understand and can move with so you know each ward can be its own little area and you start by just describing the ward that they're in and then if they have to go do something you might describe how that other thing is in this other ward and you might just you want to just be revealing two or three things with each ward that comes out. But, you know, you, it, it, not only is it easy to be overwhelmed as a DM when you have a city with 196 different locations. Like, if you look at, like, the original Waterdeep city system book, I think it had, like, 200 locations in Waterdeep, right? It was huge. Who the hell can even read that, right? It, that's, not, that's not real helpful. So that idea of breaking it down into pieces... And then focusing those pieces on like five to seven different locations and then expanding it out as they explore a little bit more and more as part of the story. I think that helps you as a DM, but it also helps the players. The players aren't going to get it any more than you. So if you say, let me describe for you the 25 locations you can go to, they're going to forget number one after you read the seventh one. Right. So that idea of like five, you know, there's there's like pseudoscience about five to seven you know, about five to seven choices or what can kind of stick in someone's head. I don't think it's true anymore. I think they 
debunked it at this point, but it's probably close enough, right? Pick, pick, pick one area that they're going to start at, that they're going to go to, and then describe like the five or seven locations in there that you think are going to matter to them. So the other one is you can do a character driven way. Look at what quest they're on. Look at what the characters, who, what classes they have or backgrounds they have, and then describe the things that you think will be directly interesting to them, right? Tune, tune what you're talking about by describing what is directly interesting to them. And that way you're narrowing the options down to the things that are going to really matter to them, right? It's that sort of like looking one or two horizons out. You're not, you're not, you're not building the whole world. You're just building the things that the characters are directly going to see and the things that they're going to want. Anthony, I hope that I hope that helps you. Sean B says, I'll try to keep this short as I can here. Players are tier three, bordering a tier four. I have a dungeon with three main entrances and the MacGuffin at the bottom. A MacGuffin is like the, the item that the characters have to get. If you don't know what a MacGuffin is, you can look it up on Wikipedia. But a MacGuffin means like that one thing that you're going to get, whatever it is. Three factions of demons, each with base camp at one entrance, descending and encountering one another. A fourth faction inside at the bottom, defending the, pl- the, the plot coupon, the MacGuffin. One more demon faction just having fun and causing chaos. Wow, that's a lot of factions. Five factions. Players have, and six if you include the players. Players obviously can approach in whatever they they think best. Stealth, diplomacy, brute force, whatever. How do you make it feel like an active and brutal war of five armies is happening around the players? Make the battle seem make sense and have realistic and believable outcomes without boring everybody by taking turns for the 500 random NPCs that may or may not have registered. The A, don't roll for monsters fighting monsters. Number, number one, right? Just, you know, put stuff in the background. You've got your foreground. Your foreground are your characters versus the things they're facing and then you have stuff in the background right you have things that are going on in the background so you know think about like the fred flintstone people you know people just like hitting in the background and like dust piles right that's what you want to describe you can just take whatever's going on in the background and describe it if you want the players to see the kind of things that are going on first of all you get to decide you know where things are going which group is getting you know is is making progress against another somebody in the chat here on twitch just said try a hex flower and that might be an interesting idea if you want to experiment with the hex flower you can find out more about hex flowers i'll, I'll link to it in the show notes below goblin is it goblin punch goblin's henchman has a whole article about hex flowers you could use a hex flower hex flower is a way to have a random I, I did a I, I did a talk about hex flowers before but in short a hex flower is a way to have a random table that has state so that what you rolled from roll to roll you're sort of moving on a board and that means the next roll knows what the previous roll was right so it'd be a fun way of like changing up the odds as one faction is getting stronger than another really that that, that would be a good way to do it so who brought that up on twitch meeple 15 said good way to use a hex flower meeple 15 you get a gold star for the day thank you for that so that you know the different ways but basically you get to decide which group is doing is, is getting them to drop on the other one like the temple of elemental evil does this prince of the apocalypse which is based on temple of of elemental evil it does this as well and you can you you but you you either decide or you roll randomly or something like that to determine which group is getting it and then have the results of that visible to the players they go into rooms and they see one demon group that got completely slaughtered by something they can do an investigation and figure out it's this other demon group that did it they could run into an npc it's like oh you're you must be part of the mercenary force so the real question is how do the players get to see this stuff and they could see it through investigations of previous battles they could get it through talking to npcs and figuring what's going on they could pick up intelligence and like news pieces of paper the pocket litter that the monsters have, they could pick up that kind of stuff. There's lots of different things. There are lots of different ways that they could be exposed to what's happening and still move through. But the big thing is to remember, it's not really happening. That part's not real. The real stuff is what the characters are doing. So the rest of it is just in the background and you want to keep it in the background. You don't want to spend a lot. You can go ahead and spend time on it if you want to. It's not, not going to help too much because the players aren't really going to see what they're going to see. 
but just don't forget about what the players are doing because like five managing five factions is going to be pretty hard and you don't want your player you don't want to put that burden on the players they might just go i have no idea who's doing what anymore because like i've seen so much crazy stuff and that might be realistic because they you know they're, they're getting more data than they can see but don't have monsters roll against monsters joe m says i've always liked the trope of magic comes with a price and wanted to give my pc some magic items that would work this way do you have any thoughts about what the price of these items could be an example is an item that casts fireball once a day but you upcast a higher level maximized by taking damage yourself for con this is a grim dark episodic campaign Morkberg style, Morkberg style with a mono class party of all clerics that's funny it's really just for breaks in our cam- a regular campaign so no one is too concerned about game balance or anything sure like those ideas I don't really have any good design thoughts about like how to put a detriment on an item that also has an advantage I think that's way better than a cursed item the idea of having an item that they, you know the bad thing it does items that drain healing surges right a- item that's sucking your life out to do extra damage stuff like that is really cool and the cool bit it's still cursed it's just a curse that is has this has this benefit and a disadvantage that a character a player has to decide is worth it right so you're going to want to balance it and you might say to the player like we're going to balance this a little bit to make sure you want it right on that edge of i almost don't want to use it but i still want to use it right and and sometimes they might say oh the detriment is so terrible i'm never going to use it or oh that detriment means nothing at all i'm going to use it all the time right so that balance is a hard thing to figure out and you might have to tweak it a little bit you might even have to talk to the player you know maybe the sword grows like it knows about this balance and it's trying to get the balance the other one that i love of course is intelligent magic items i love like shady intelligent magic items are my favorite ones i love the shield of the hidden lord in descent into avernus I've had intelligent magic items in like almost every campaign, right? And it's great because it's also an NPC, but it's an it's a tag along NPC that's always with them, but doesn't get in the way. And I just, I find that fascinating. So another thing you could do on top of your uh, advantage, disadvantages is also giving them some intelligence or they're learning things from the sword, the sword or the item, right? And in, and especially on all cleric, dark, grimdark, all of their items should be evil items trying to twist them and turn them into the dark side. MTBDM says, what is the best, what's the best way to keep prep brief? Even using your method from the lazy dungeon master, I find myself writing far too many words and have difficulty editing myself to just the essential. A timer. Try to ask yourself what, you know, try 30 minutes. Say, I'm going to do all my prep and I'm going to do it in 30 minutes. You can force yourself. This is really, you want the advanced game on this. Do it 30 minutes before your game. And now you have to have it ready, right? And that probably, that's pretty high stress. If, you, if you're doing a lot, it's pretty high stress. If you're looking at your prep and you're saying, this is all useful and I'm using it all, that's fine. And if you have the time and you're enjoying yourself, who am I to say it should be shorter, right? I'm not saying like your prep should be this short and if it's longer than that, it's terrible, right? I'm saying lots of people have, don't have the time, right? And, and sometimes when we're doing our prep, the things that we're prepping aren't really making our game better right? Those things I think can be true and still not say long prep is bad. So if you're having fun and it's working, you, you don't need to listen to me, right? And, 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 and but if you want to keep it brief, ways or t- timers. And you might say like, I'm only going to do 10 secrets. They can only be one or two sentences each. Like you can limit your word count. One thing is like, get a sheet of paper, use one sheet of paper and you only get to use that sheet of paper and you don't get to like write sideways in the margins, right? And if you limit yourself, that limitation can can get you used to like really refining down to the things you absolutely need. The problem with the web and like digital tools is it's infinite and practically infinite, right? Like we could just write forever, right? And that, you know, that sometimes means we overdo it. So two, two tools that can help you. One is a, a timer, time yourself. And two is a limited sheet of paper. And you can try that. But those, those are ways. But again, don't beat yourself up, right? If it's working for you, it's working. 
And so you don't need to beat yourself up. You know, it's always, I think it's useful to kind of like look at our system and look at what we're doing and look at what works and look at what's not and refine it constantly. But making yourself feel bad, particularly if you're like, oh, I see how Mike does it and Mike's doing it this way and I'm not and therefore I'm a terrible person. Oh boy, no, right? No, no, no. We all get to choose how we do it and we all get to choose what works for us and nobody else gets to tell you. So MTDM, I hope that helps. Matt, Matthew J says, I've tried introducing mechanics such as mounted combat from Arcadia or strongholds from kingdoms, kingdoms and followers, but they seem to forget, but seem to forget them, barely use them. Do you have any supplemental rules in your games? If so, how do you get your players to engage with said supplemental rules? Uh, I think I've talked about it on the show before. I, I, I kept this question in because I think it's, I, I think I looked and I couldn't find anything. I'm like, okay, we're going to have a question on this. I, I'm not a fan of subsystems. I feel like the core rules for we're specifically talking fifth edition D&D, right? The core rules handle pretty much everything. And ability checks are really powerful. Skill, adding skill proficiencies are really powerful. Advantage and disadvantage are really powerful tools. All of those tools together mean we can pretty much handle anything that comes along the line. And a lot of times when I've seen systems for like, how do ships work? Or how does avalanches work? Or how do you drive a weird ass car? That those subsystems get in the way more than they help that we don't want to learn a new thing and it's and trying to learn a whole new system that's usually pretty janky right it's usually not great because we haven't had a time to test it it hasn't been tested thoroughly it's not part of the core rules it's not something we have eight years experience running it that they, they get pretty bad and it's like you know you can do skill checks and saving throws for all that stuff an avalanche collapses on you make a constitution saving throw right it's like 10 seconds instead of having two pages of of avalanche rules you can just roll a saving throw how do you drive a car around roll intelligence checks to drive your car intelligence or dexterity like are you using your brain or are you using your your muscle reflex to drive your car around use that stuff right so i think the core rules account for a lot and that we don't really need subsystems on this i just wrote an article i will link to this in the show notes below where i make this argument now again this is you ask my opinion right this is mike shay's opinion not i know that there are people out there i have many friends who i love and adore who have written subsystems and you know who am i to be like ah those are terrible and they're bad they're, are they bad for dnd no I don't, I, they're not, but I think that an approach can be something to think about is, is that subsystem actually helping me or can I just stick to, to the skills? It really depends on the kind of game you want, but I know having done a lot of subsystems, having added a lot of things, having done, some of them work really well. The one time when I had a psionic battle between a character and a monster of character and a NPC, an evil NPC, and I used Jenga and I was playing while we were in having our NPC interaction. There's a whole RPG that's based on Jenga. It's a role playing game called Dread that uses Jenga as its as its thing. And I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. And I bought a set of Jenga and we had this the character, the player and myself, and he would roll checks. And when he rolled checks, that would mean I had to pull two blocks instead of just one. It was sort of like advantage and disadvantage. Right. And whoever collapsed it lost their their part of the psionic battle they failed and their psionic part was broken and the other person got control over them it was really cool and the player had the advantage because he most of the time i i did not get to roll skill checks against him he had to roll them against me so it meant i was usually rolling two i was pulling two blocks instead of him which meant i'm much more likely to collapse the thing and it happened that was really fun the number of times that subsystems work as well as that is much is rare right? Sometimes they work really well. That one worked really well. I mean, it was just me and a player too. It wasn't even part of the game. So sometimes they can work. A lot of times they just get in the way and it's like, we have to rule this whole, you know, learn this whole new system and it's weird and imbalanced. And I just want to roll skill check, right? So I would argue 
try not. And if you want to learn more, I wrote about it in my article. S. Morgan McKay says, any tips on how to handle players spamming the guidance cantrip without nerfing it altogether? Yes. First of all, you can not, you can not care, right? If it, I, don't, I tend not to care. They want to cast guidance, they can cast guidance. What do I care? It's, a, it's an added D4. It's not a big deal. I do get a little annoyed at like the way the narrative works where somebody is like, I'm going to go and I'm going to listen at the door and like in the kitchen is like, I cast guidance, right? And or uh, guidance or somebody will just say guidance, right? Like, like it's like we're playing magic down and throwing a card. So I, I usually ask, like, well, can you talk about what that looks like? Again, get them in the game. Like what, it, you know, and there are certain circumstances where guidance isn't going to work. I'm negotiating with the guard about getting in. I cast guidance. Really? The guard is going to be like, why are you casting a spell on your friend? Right? Magic. Why, we're just having a conversation. Now you're casting spells. So there might be circumstances. And again, I would not spring it on the players. I would not surprise them by this, but I would say like, if you go and cast guidance while you're having this conversation with the guard, the guard might be suspicious about why you're casting magic like that. It's like you're manipulating. And like guards know about magic. It's like you're manipulating. So there's certain circumstances, particularly in interaction, where guidance can't be used without revealing that you're using magic to break something. The other one is remembering that guide the the remembering the flow of guidance. Guidance is not a reaction. Guidance is an action, which means guidance has to be cast before somebody starts manipulating something we treat it like it's a reaction a lot of times a character will say i'm going to go ahead and pick the lock and i'm going to go ahead and pick the lock and the cleric says i'm going to cast guidance and you're like that actually doesn't work that way because in theory the person's already begun picking the lock right and you can't cast guidance while they're picking the lock it has to be before they pick the lock so you could be a nitpicker about the rules and say if you're going to cast guidance on somebody, you have to do it before somebody starts a check, which means the person who's going to do the check needs to ask the cleric to cast guidance first. Hey, I'm about to pick this lock. Can you cast guidance on me before I do it? Sure. Okay. And now I have guidance. Now I'm going to go pick the lock. I know I know DMs that have described being a, a, a nitpicky about that. I think that's kind of lame because it's like really, especially if it's a situation that isn't time sensitive, you would assume that the characters know what they're doing and that the cleric is going to cast guidance on the rogue who's going to pick the lock especially if there's nothing else going on the a way to kind of offset this is they don't get to try it again so sure if you if you have people that are doing a lot of aiding because aiding is a much bigger deal when somebody says oh i'm gonna aid and i do it all the time as a player right i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna help my friend right like i, I you know a lot of times i was in a game last night and i said i want to look at this area and see if it looks like these statues were destroyed physically or if they collapsed over time and my DM, Chris, said, great, make an investigation check. And I'm like, how about Hollis makes the investigation? How about I ask, hey, Hollis, you want to take a look at this? Like maybe together we can look at this. All right, Cecilina. Hey, Cecilina, do you want to take a look at this and maybe investigate and see whether or not these were collapsed by time? Because I know Cecilina has a plus five and I got a plus one, right? Why wouldn't she do the check? And I will, I will help her. So I changed the scene and description so that she's the one doing the check. And I did that just to game the system. I did it because she's got a plus five and now she has advantage. And that's better than me having advantage of plus one. And we could have just said, hey, can you also cast guidance on us? But really when there's no time sensitive nature, a lot of times you're going to have two people that can work on something together and thus get advantage on the check. And you're going to get guidance and that's okay, right? It's okay. Also, but what you can be a stickler about is you don't get to retry it. So if you say, I investigate, oh man, I only rolled a, I, you know, I rolled two sixes and I only got an 11. And he's like, yeah, you don't really know. And like, oh, well, we're going to do it too. No, you say, no, it's already been checked, right? Like you, you're not going to find that anything more than your friends found out. 
So you can be a stickler about you can be a you can be a stickler about that kind of thing. Nicole has something to say about this. Remembering that guidance is verbal and semantic is usually enough. Also concentration. So no helping for advantage while also guiding. No guidance if you're in a situation where you might get attacked and, and start casting a spell. Yeah, right. Right. That's all. That's all very true. But, but honestly, I just don't care. Right. I don't I don't worry about it. And I want my players to succeed. So the fact that like I don't change I don't increase the DCs. Like somebody might say, Oh, well, if you have players do all the time, just increase the DCs by five, right? And that would be much harder. I don't do that either, because like I don't want them to fail. Like the fact that they are using they're they're working together and using spells to help them get past a situation as part of the game. So generally I'm okay with that. My friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, where you'll get a weekly Sly Flourish article directly to your inbox and a free Adventure Builder PDF. You can support me directly on Patreon, where you can get access to things like the City of Arches, video previews, a dedicated Discord channel, all different kinds of stuff through the Patreon. You can go and pick up any of my books in the Sly Flourish bookstore. The links to that are in the show notes below. And you can help me out by subscribing to my YouTube channel and liking this video so that other people get to see it. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today. It is always a great joy to do this show. Thank you very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.